the hell is going on? What's really going on? We said, what the hell happened? You don't have to know what the hell is on it. They see what's going on. I don't know what's going on. What is going on? We must find out what is going on. Hi, I'm Mark Thiessen. Hi, I'm Danielle Fleck. Welcome to our still fresh and new podcast. What the hell is going on? What are we talking about today? We're talking about Afghanistan. We're recording this just on the brink of the uh, the announcement of a new deal in Afghanistan that apparently the Trump administration has been negotiating with the Taliban, negotiating, in fact, with the people that the Obama administration released from Guantanamo Bay. Excellent. Uh, you know, so good, it's, good nego- it's like the circle of life, it's really. Like cir- Elton John could do the, the, the singing for this music. Exactly. So we're, they've been negotiating, and uh, after 18 years and $851 billion uh, spent, uh, Donald Trump wants to get us out of, uh, get us out of Afghanistan. So this is actually Donald Trump is executing in his effort to get us out of Afghanistan the policy that was in fact articulated by the Obama administration, mm-hmm. right? Which is to do a deal with the Taliban, not the legitimate government of Afghanistan, yeah. but the Taliban. The guys have been killing the people in the legitimate elected U.S. supported government of Afghanistan. Do a deal with the Taliban. And then skedaddle, draw down troops to one level and then another drawdown after that. It's actually worse than that because he's doing what Obama wanted to do but decided he couldn't do after Iraq. So I I believe that Barack Obama's goal of his presidency was that by the time he left office, he was going to have ended George Bush's wars. He was going to have completely withdrawn all of our troops out of Iraq, and then he was going to have completely withdrawn all of our troops out of Afghanistan, and this was going to be his great foreign policy legacy. And then what happened was in Iraq, uh, when we took our boot off of the necks of the terrorists, thanks to David Petraeus and the the surge in, in 2009, there were only about 700 al-Qaeda uh, in Iraq fighters left, which became ISIS. And we took our boots off their necks, and all of a sudden, they developed the caliphate the size of Great Britain, tens of thousands of fighters, a global network that spread to 29 countries, killed thousands of peoples in dozens of countries around the world. And he realized that they were not the JV team and that we had to go back in and fight them. And so we did that. And that, in turn slowed his decision-making to have a complete pullout of Afghanistan. So he was not able to achieve those goals. Donald Trump is now completing the unfinished work of Barack Obama in Afghanistan. Well, that's very impressive. So we've elected Donald Trump to finish the Obama administration, words that I never thought I would utter, and yet all too often that come to mind. So, look, let's talk a little bit about the detail before we start ranting about how bad this deal is. Um, because, no, look, yeah. most people aren't paying attention to Afghanistan. It is a small country far away about which we know little, <laughs> for, those, for those of you who care Neville about his Neville Chamberlain story. reference. <laughs> yes. And yet it's so easy to be Neville Chamberlain, it turns out. Yeah. So the shape of this deal is is reasonably straightforward. Things are theoretically going a little bit better in in Afghanistan. We have quite a few U.S. and allied coalition troops on the ground there. Not not many. Do you know what the number is of troops we have on the ground? We have about 14,000 now. So we have about 14,000 troops on the ground, and uh, and we want to get out. Okay. Uh, the Trump administration has appointed former ambassador to, to Iraq and uh, Afghanistan and actually of Afghan origin, interestingly, mm-hmm. um, Zalmay Khalasad, to be our negotiator. Um, and he has been uh, diligently toiling away with our friends in the Taliban to uh, to come to some sort of agreement, and meeting the ba- in a variety of places. The basic outline of the agreement is 
that the U.S. is going to get out of Afghanistan by 2020, and that the it's a it's a phase withdrawal. Uh, that part one is that the Taliban and Afghan government will talk; that they agree to talk. Part two is we have an immediate reduction from 14,000 to about 8,600, so basically cut our troops in half. Right. Um, and then the Taliban is going to guarantee that al Qaeda will have no sanctuary in Afghanistan and that they will help us defeat ISIS, uh, which is kind of uh, interesting. And based on that, we will completely withdraw our forces, all, all of our, our forces, forces out. Donald Trump wants to have all of our troops out of Afghanistan by 2020, by the 2020 election, which is interesting because there really is no political pressure to do this. I mean, Jack Keane makes an, made an interesting point that during Mark Esper's confirmation hearing as Secretary, Mark Esper, yeah. Yeah, as Secretary of Defense, yeah. not a single question about pulling out of Afghanistan in the entire confirmation process. There's not from the Democrats, not from anybody else. There's, this is purely Donald Trump, non-interventionist, wanting to pull us out of Afghanistan. Knowing, by the way, uh, that understanding that we have lost 14 troops this year in Afghanistan yeah. in fighting. Now, you know, we mourn every single soldier lost in, in action, but that's, as Brett Stevens pointed out in the New York Times, fewer than we lose in accidents in the U.S. military. There's a lot of parallels here with Iraq that we're going to talk about as well and the, and the yeah. Obama pullout from Iraq. But uh, what's notable about this deal with uh, the Taliban? Uh, we keep saying the deal with the Taliban. It's not because we're being sly and nasty. It's because it's a deal with the Taliban. It is not a deal with the legitimate government of Afghanistan. And they have not been in the room for the negotiations. And they are not party to the deal. Yep. Part two, there's no role whatsoever for Pakistan. So we have no guarantees that... All of the safe havens for, you know, all of Osama bin Laden's successors in the leadership of Al Qaeda and all of the other splinter terrorist groups that there are, let alone ISIS, are actually not going to be continuing to operate. So that's all going to continue like the party that it is today. It's just going to happen without U.S. troops on the ground. And further, that the Taliban, which of course hosted Al Qaeda before 9-11, um, and enabled al-Qaeda to plan the attacks that happened on 9-11 is not going to allow al-Qaeda <laughs> to operate from its soil. And even more, honestly, just laughable is that they're going to fight ISIS. I'm sorry, what? Al-Qaeda and the Taliban are brothers. And people forget this, that like the global terrorists around the world all pledged bayat, which, uh, uh, fealty. loyalty, fealty, to Osama bin Laden. Osama bin Laden pledged bayat to Mullah Omar, the leader of the Taliban. He was a follower of Mullah Omar and pledged loyalty and subservience to the Taliban. So this is these these people are joined at the hip, these organizations. What the hell is wrong with Donald Trump? Why, despite the fact that, as you say, there are no demands to do this, that we're taking a very low level of casualties, that this has been part and parcel of the success that we've had since 9-11 of stopping U.S. attack, another mass casualty attack on U.S. soil. Why, why is he so hot and bothered? Well, let, me, let me play devil's advocate because I'm, okay. I'm, you and I agree on this pullout, but I want to I make the case for but people. you want to argue with me nonetheless? No, I don't, I'm not <laughs> arguing with you. I just want to, I, I want our listeners who may have, because our listeners have legitimate questions about these policies. And I think that we, mm -hmm. uh, that we, need, to, uh, we need to take them seriously. Americans look at this and say, look, we've been at war for, for 18 years. We sort of take for granted that we haven't been hit 
in 18 years in the homeland, but that's because of these policies. But they say, look, we're spending You're all this money. Case again. <laughs> no, but we're spending we're spending all this money. We spent 18 years, 851 billion dollars in Afghanistan, in this country, if so far away. Uh, the threat is gone. Why are we still there? Why do we have to be the ones on the ground doing this? And if they start to threaten us. Then I'm trying to do this, do, give right, a, right, give a right. fair argument to the other side. If they start to threaten us, we've got the strongest military in the world. We can come and whack them. Okay, but ex post, uh, you know, the strongest military in the world didn't stop 19 guys from taking out the World Trade Center and the Pentagon. Right. And so I'm not saying this to you, Mark. I know you know this, but guys out there who believe that this is one of those endless wars that we ought to get out of. The answer is that, first of all, this is not a hot war that we're fighting in Afghanistan right true. now. We are keeping, I don't want to say the peace because there's no peace for the Afghan people. We're keeping the peace for ourselves. Yeah. We really are. We haven't delivered a safe and secure society for the Afghan people. But what we have done is ensure that these bad Actors have not been able to settle once again in Afghanistan to plan another attack. It's all good and nice to say that we've got the strength to come in and knock the bejesus out of you after you come in and kill 3,000 Americans. It's not worth killing 3,000 Americans again if we can keep 14,000 troops on the ground in Afghanistan. And this is something we're going to talk about yeah. with our guests. So let's let's save our argument for the end because we're going to go. We always come back and, uh, and, and have at it. Have an but let's actually talk to somebody who's actually knocked the bejesus. Jesus out of these guys. <laughs> yeah, not just in Afghanistan, but in Iraq. It's really, it's such a huge pleasure for, for Mark and me to welcome General uh, David Petraeus to our podcast. He's now the, the chairman of KKR Global Institute, but before that, he was the director of central intelligence in the Obama administration. He was the commander of ISAF and of U.S. forces in Afghanistan. He was the commander of Central Command, which is Middle East, South Asia, our command for the military. He was the head of multinational forces in Iraq. He is the guy who executed the surge Absolutely. in Iraq. He is the guy who kicked the bejesus out of Saddam Hussein, his sons, and all those bad guys. He is a truly great general, West Point grad, Ph.D. from Princeton, and uh, and a great American. So, General Petraeus, thank you so much for being with us. Good to be with you. Thanks. So let's start with Afghanistan because the news is breaking that there's going to be a deal uh, very soon. You wrote a piece in the Wall Street Journal that was really uh, very uh, uh, heartening um, in the sense of what's happening there. And you said, under no circumstances should the Trump administration repeat the mistake its predecessor made in Iraq and agree to a total withdrawal of combat forces in Afghanistan. What is the deal shaping up to look like and what are your concerns about it? What we are hearing is that the agreement will be to uh, reduce our forces down to somewhere around 8,600 that the Taliban will commit to not allow al-Qaeda to commit to operate on soil that they control. Uh, there's no mention of the Islamic State, which is a bit concerning because, of course, they are very substantial in eastern Afghanistan as well. The Afghan negotiations with the Taliban, so a direct between the government and the Taliban, apparently will be conducted in Oslo, hosted by the Norwegians. There may be an element uh, in the deal that says we'll remove all of our forces by sometime in 2020. 
Again, ceasefire in areas that are under the Taliban's control and acceptance. I think that we continue to fund and support the Afghan National Security Forces in a variety of different ways and uh, carry out some counterterrorism operations, although, again, the definition of what this is uh, is a bit unclear. So, look, I want to be hopeful that what is being negotiated uh, is something that would be a reasonable deal. Uh, but obviously, I have some reservations, and those were expressed in the op-ed piece that I did with my colleague, Vance Surchuk, uh, and where we actually said what we think we ought to be doing is instead of preparing to leave, we should be preparing to stay, that this is not a huge commitment in terms of blood or treasure. We have substantial national interest there. We went there for a reason, and it was stayed for a reason. That's because that's where the 9-11 attacks were planned when al-Qaeda had a sanctuary in eastern Afghanistan, when the Taliban controlled that part and the bulk of the country. And that's where the initial turning of the attackers was conducted. Uh, and we have seen al-Qaeda and now the Islamic State work very hard to try to reestablish a sanctuary there. There's something about that area that is very appealing to them. And that, again, we have worked very hard to ensure that that does not happen. We should also note that Afghanistan is as we saw with the Osama bin Laden operation, which was launched from Afghan soil, uh, it's also the platform for the regional counterterrorism campaign. So again, let's wait. Let's uh, certainly keep an open mind, wait to see the actual text that is announced, uh, assess that on the merits, again, with respect for the uh, lead who's negotiating this on the U.S. side. But again, offering some reservations, and, and one of those not the least, uh, I should mention, is that the Taliban so far has refused to sit down with the democratically elected government of Afghanistan at the same table. So uh, thank you so much for being on, on, General. It's always really an honor to talk to you about these issues. One of the things I, I'd like to get to quickly is how we got where we are today, because we can talk about the, the, the wisdom, and I think you know, Mark and I will come as no surprise to our listeners, agree with you 100% about this. Uh, but the case that's being made, not just by the president and those who support the negotiations right now, but was made also by the Obama administration and, frankly, is being made by a lot of the Democratic candidates for president is that Afghanistan is an endless war. I despise that expression, but there it is. It's used and it is, we've been there for almost 18 years. There is at least a question to be asked about, A, why we haven't won. What does winning look like? Um, Donald Trump said uh, in the last few days when he was talking about it, what did he say? Let me quote him exactly. We could win in Afghanistan in two or three days or four days if we wanted, but I'm not looking to kill 10 million people. Uh, okay. But at substantial cost, blood and in treasure, and very substantial cost to the Afghan people, we have been there for many, many years, and arguably we have not won. How did we get here? What is the problem? Are there intrinsic challenges? Just sort of start sure. from the beginning. Um, let me uh, start up front, Danielle, by just noting that it is often said that we are negotiating the end of the war in Afghanistan. Uh, we're actually not negotiating the end of the war. We're negotiating the reduction of U.S. involvement in Afghanistan and presumably coalition involvement because they will follow us. They'll re remain in some 
percentage similar to what they are now relative to our forces. Uh, but I fear that the war is going to go on. Um, so again, that as a caveat, uh, as Ryan Crocker used to say, you can you can leave the movie theater. He was referring, of course, to Iraq. You can leave the movie theater, uh, but the movie continues to to play on, and that will be the case in Afghanistan. Another point is that yes, we have been at war in Afghanistan for approaching 19 years, but you know we've had tens of thousands of troops, hundreds of thousands throughout the Cold War on European soil, uh, tens of thousands, 30 or 40,000 troops on Korean soil, tens of thousands of troops throughout the Asia Pacific and a variety of other places around the world. Now, admittedly, they're not taking casualties. They are not in an active combat situation, which clearly is the case in Afghanistan. But they're there because we have vital national interests, uh, which that presence uh, helps to uh, ensure that we safeguard. I would contend that, again, we have a national interest in Afghanistan. As I mentioned earlier, we went there because that's where the 9-11 attacks were planned, when al-Qaeda had a sanctuary and the Taliban controlled Afghanistan. Uh, and we have stayed to ensure that they're not able to reestablish the sanctuary. And, of course, now we see the Islamic State trying to do the same. So, uh, again, there's a reason for being there. Uh, that's why we are there. And I would also contend that that's why we should continue to be there, albeit with a strategy that holds to an absolute minimum the cost to the U.S. and coalition and ideally to our Afghan security partners as well who have borne the brunt of this, but to minimize the cost in, in blood and treasure. One other quick caveat. The negotiation we are carrying out is with the Afghan Taliban. It is very unclear, in fact, it's very doubtful that the Afghan Taliban can commit the many other groups. There's at least a dozen or so, depending on your counting rules, that are causing significant problems and significant casualties for Afghanistan and the Afghan people uh, and for our forces and, and our Afghan partners. Let's not forget, you have the Haqqani network. Sometimes the Haqqani Taliban, we assess that they were irreconcilable when I was the commander on the ground in Afghanistan and at U.S. Central Command. Will they actually lay down their weapons uh, if the Taliban says to do that? I think that's unlikely. What about al-Qaeda? Certainly not. What about the Islamic State? No way. What about the Islamic movement of Uzbekistan? No. What about the Tariqi Taliban Pakistani, the Pakistani Taliban who are often on Afghan soil, although their targets are more in Pakistan, certainly? Um, no. And by the way, not even all of the Taliban. We've already seen defections, just as the negotiations have been going on, uh, to, again, the Islamic State or to al-Qaeda, because they are more lethal in the eyes of some of those who have been uh, fighting for the Taliban. So I think we even need to be measured about what actually happens if the Taliban truly does exercise restraint or a general ceasefire uh, in the five areas to which they have committed. Does that really demonstrably change the situation on the ground in Afghanistan? I think the answer to that has to be qualified. I think there will be certain areas, of course, which have been brought back under control of the Taliban, sadly, uh, in which there will be very reduced violence. But there are going to be many areas in which there is still a very high level of violence. And you saw that the most recent horrific attack in Kabul was not carried out by the Taliban. It was uh, claimed actually by the Islamic State. That's the, uh, the, the wedding uh, attack in yes, which more yeah, than 60 people yeah. were, were killed. But the, the 
concern, at least that President Trump has basically said, is that look, if those people all go want to want to go and kill each other, that's not America's problem. What a, what we need to be concerned about is whether they want to come here and kill us. Right. And and, and this is why I have stressed that the reason we went was to eliminate the Al Qaeda sanctuary. The reason we have stayed is to ensure that they are not able to And that to mission's been successful. I mean, for our 18 years and $851 and, and billion, that, dollars, that we... is essentially how you define winning. Now, yeah. I'd obviously like to complement that or augment that, if you will, by uh, helping the Afghans uh, establish good governance and uh, improve the quality of life for their people and rebuild damaged uh, infrastructure and all the rest of this. These are all laudable and, and desirable goals. But at the end of the day, it is about extremists who are continually seeking to establish a sanctuary in eastern Afghanistan from which they will do what al-Qaeda did back prior to 9-11. But your point is very interesting that you're, you're basically saying that even if, the, if we took it at face value that the Taliban were willing to sort of restrain some of these affiliated groups that they really can't do that. But, you know, our, They've actually our mutual been fighting Al-Qaeda. Yeah. Uh, they have actually been. You know, there are often uh, battles between different extremist groups for sure. control of turf that each of them wants to control. And they certainly haven't been prevailing. They, again, th their capabilities relative to, to Al-Qaeda and especially to ISIS now, or our, the but Islamic our, State, they our, are. Our mutual friend, Jack Keane, puts it this way, that he's basically, the Taliban and al-Qaeda are brothers, that they, in, in 2001, President Bush asked, said, we'll leave you alone, we won't threaten your governance, we won't, we'll, as long as you hand over the people who get terrorists out, and they were willing to lose their regime and take lots of casualties in order to protect al-Qaeda. So how can we trust that even, how can we trust that, you're saying they couldn't even do it if they wanted to, how, how can we believe that they're not right now saying to al-Qaeda, lay low, the Americans are leaving. They're gonna they're gonna go down to 8,600 troops immediately, and then go to zero by 2020, and then you can come back in and reestablish your uh, your safe haven. It is a valid concern. Yeah. So can can I ask you a, a question about this this winning issue? Because I do think that I think you make a an important, and I think you make actually a, a very little heard case here, which is uh, okay. You know, this isn't going to be. Japan. This isn't going to be Nazi Germany, right? We're not going to, as Donald Trump said, can kill 10 million people in four days. On the other hand, by the standard that we set for ourselves, which is that al-Qaeda and related movements cannot establish an operational territory in which they plan attacks against the United States and its allies, by that standard, actually, we have one. And not only that... Well, the problem is that it's not a decisive. We are winning. We are, we are achieving our objectives is the way I used to say it. I, I'm very uncomfortable with words like winning and losing for that matter, although losing is actually pretty obvious when that happens. No, well. Uh, but, but winning, uh, I think, has a sense of finality to it that is not the case here. What we have been doing is achieving our objectives, but we know that we can't leave and continue to achieve our objectives we, until we make a lot more progress in other areas. What war have we won by that sort of, by that definition of winning? What war have we won since the end of World War II? Oh, obviously Desert Storm was the, you know, that was sent from central casting for the United States <laughs> Army. In, no, seriously, I mean, yeah. it's, it's out in the desert. It's as close as the conditions of the National Training Center, where the Army's heavy forces trained, as you could possibly get. No civilians on the battlefield, no urban clutter, 
Uh, it's just basically tank on tank, and we own the skies, so we could pound them for 40-some-odd days before we finally attack them, and then we just roll right over them. So, yeah, no, that was a, and again, defining winning there as reestablishing the legitimate regime in Kuwait. Right. Uh, certainly not, not, not about, that, right, not about, not about getting about, Saddam Hussein out of, exactly out of right. Iraq. That's but, right. But since you bring Iraq into the discussion, uh, your warning was not to repeat the mistakes that President Obama made in 2011 in, in, in Iraq. Talk a little bit about the differences between Afghanistan today and Iraq in 2011, because thanks to you and, and, and to the surge, Al-Qaeda in Iraq, or, or which became ISIS, uh, was down to about 700 fighters. And we took our boot off of their necks and they turned into a caliphate the size of Great Britain with tens of thousands of fighters and all the rest of it. In Afghanistan, we're not even close to having achieved that kind of success. And what would happen if we pulled all of our forces out there? Well, first of all, again, what was done to the Al-Qaeda in Iraq during the surge was the military term destruction. So it's even beyond defeat. It's basically have completely destroyed their ability to accomplish their mission unless they can reconstitute. So you always do recognize that an enemy can actually get back up off the, the canvas even after having been decked mm-hmm. uh, and knocked out. Uh, and that is indeed what happened uh, in Iraq. In Between Iraq and Afghanistan in general, there are huge differences. In fact, on my way home from the three-star tour in Iraq, so I'd been in Iraq well over two and a quarter years at that point in time, and Secretary Rumsfeld asked me to come home through Afghanistan, which I pointed out was not the direct line between <laughs> Iraq and home. But So we took a team and went over there, and uh, ostensibly to look at the training and equip mission for the uh, Afghan security forces, but you really had to put that into context. And so when I briefed them, the very first slide in that briefing was titled... Afghanistan does not equal Iraq, and then laid out all the different categories of comparison. The biggest difference being, of course, that the major insurgent group headquarters, again, the Taliban, Haqqani, Al-Qaeda, etc., were all out of reach, by and large, of coalition forces in Afghanistan, because, of course, the Taliban's headquarters is down in the Baluchistan province of Pakistan, Uh, Most of the other groups are in the rugged western tribal areas of Pakistan. And so you literally can't get to them. And that's a huge, huge challenge uh, for forces on the ground. Second, you know, Afghanistan in the best year could generate maybe a billion dollars in government revenue. Iraq could generate a hundred billion if the oil prices are right and if we help them get their oil infrastructure repaired and the Mm -hmm. electrical grid going again to power it, etc. One is highly illiterate, the other is quite literate. One has great infrastructure, another has no infrastructure, all the way down. So Afghanistan, again, a very, very different place. And certainly the situation now is very, very different as well. When the Obama administration decided to abide by the agreement that had been made by President Bush, of course, uh, that we would pull all of our forces out by the end of 2011, uh, rather than trying to renegotiate something, Um, Iraq was in a reasonably good place. Violence had continued to go down in the three years since the end of the surge. It had already gone down by some 85 or more percent during the surge. By and large, country was doing pretty well, and it was the actions by the prime minister that unhinged it and plunged it right back into the edge of a civil war again by the highly sectarian actions against major Sunni leaders. Afghanistan 
is a situation where the security has been eroding since the mini-surge or the increase in forces that were there, which, of course, I was privileged to command as well. So we're already concerned about the erosion of the security situation, of the very large numbers of Afghan forces uh, being killed and wounded, and all of the usual challenges that are in Afghanistan to begin with. Again, not a great history of strong central government, inadequate infrastructure, inadequate education, inadequate government funds, and on and on and on. A lot of Americans look at this and just ask, what do we care if these people all kill each other? This is not... The president said that. I know. But, <laughs> but I mean, but a lot of... He's, just, he's reflecting the views of a lot of Americans. Yeah, sure. as, if they're all killing each other over there, that's not our problem. Let other people handle it. It's not our, it's not our business. And in the Bush administration, I remember after the 9-11 attacks, we spent a lot of time uh, debating in this country who was responsible for 9-11. And a lot of people on the left said that George W. Bush was responsible for ignoring the intelligence about al-Qaeda in the eight months that he was in office before the attacks. A lot of conservatives blamed Bill Clinton because his tepid response to the escalating attacks from the World Trade Center attack to the in 1993 to the uh, embassies in Kenya and Tanzania, the USS Cole and all the rest of that emboldened terrorists. And there's to some extent, there's truth to both of those. But really, if you want to think back to the responsibility, it goes much farther back to the 80s when when we basically abandoned Afghanistan after we succeeded in pushing the Soviet Red Army out. I think um, that's right. And that we, we, if we had stayed engaged, uh, we might have held, had some impact on, on uh, who came to power and, wh- and, and what kind of conditions. And because we basically said, Soviets are gone, our mission is accomplished, we're pulling back, it became a terrorist safe haven. And what happened 3,000 miles away from, from New York and Washington ended up blowing up in our backyard. And so, you know... Now, in fairness to the Reagan administration, they didn't have a crystal ball. They couldn't tell that that was going to happen. But now we have that hindsight. Well, first, let me just refocus on why it is that, again, the ultimate national interest in Afghanistan uh, is prevention of another terrorist safe haven from which attacks like 9-11 or something diabolically new and creative uh, might emanate. Um, but I, you know, I would submit as well that we shouldn't be oblivious to humanitarian catastrophes sure. either. You know, either as human beings, or just as realists who recognize that the implications of these catastrophes have been shown very vividly in the case of Syria, about which precisely where we the didn't, three of us care. We didn't take action uh, to begin with. Uh, And the result was millions of uh, refugees flowing through Turkey at the same time that there were millions of others coming out of North Africa, all these from a variety of sources, Afghanistan among them, by the way, and Iraq to a degree. And of course, the result of this was the biggest domestic populist challenge to almost each of the European countries. In fact, that might allow me, if I could, to very briefly give what I think are the five big lessons or big ideas that we should have taken from the last 19 years of war, and perhaps longer than that, stemming all the way back to what you were discussing about where we helped topple the Soviet Union and then washed our hands with Afghanistan. Um, So the first of the lessons is that ungoverned spaces will be exploited by Islamist extremists in, in Muslim areas. 
the second is you have to do something about it. You can't study the problem until it goes away because Las Vegas rules do not apply in these areas. What happens there doesn't stay there. It tends to spew violence, instability, extremism, and as we just discussed, a tsunami of refugees, not just in the neighboring countries, but all the way into Western Europe and, and elsewhere, causing these challenges that I've discussed. The third is that generally the U.S. has to lead. It's not to say you won't have a situation like Mali, where France admirably has led, although we're still in there with who knows a thousand or so troops supporting them. Um, but generally, the capabilities that are most needed in these situations to date, uh, the in armada of drones, uh, the ability to do industrial strength fusion of intelligence, and a large number of precision uh, strike capabilities, the U.S. has a predominant number of this. The fourth lesson is really important, and we have to keep coming back to this. That is that you cannot counter terrorists like al-Qaeda, the Islamic State, and others, which also are insurgents in many cases, with just counter-terrorist force operations. Uh, you just can't, you can't defeat them, certainly, with just drone strikes and special mission unit raids. You actually have to take action on the ground. So you have to have a comprehensive civil military campaign, call it counterinsurgency or whatever you want to call it, but it's going to have to have all the elements that were present uh, in the campaign that Ambassador Crocker and I oversaw during the surge in Iraq. But there's a big caveat to this one, and that is that we don't want to be the one providing uh, the forces on the front lines. We don't want to be the ones having to do the political reconciliation, doing all of the restoration of basic services, the reconstruction, the reestablishment of local governance, rule of law, all the rest of this. We want our host nation partners to do that wherever that is possible. And that's crucial because number five is a reminder that this is a generational struggle, not the threat of a decade, much less a few years. We're going to have to be at it for a long time. And therefore, uh, you have to have a, a strategy and approach that is sustainable when it comes to the expenditure of blood and treasure. I would contend we actually have achieved that. And that's crucially important, of course, because if you really step back and look at the strategic context, increasingly, uh, it is all about China. And clearly, there does have to be the rebalance or the pivot, pick your word, uh, initiated by the Obama administration. And we have to focus a great deal more uh, on China and the resurgence of Russia and a variety of other challenges around the world. But, you know, a superpower can keep more than one plate spinning at a time. And I'd contend that this counter-terrorism uh, threat, uh, which again can't be countered just with counter-terrorist force operations, is a plate that we're going to have to keep spinning, as I said, for a generation, not just a decade or two. There's uh, Tony Blair did an interview a few years ago on CNN, and it was interesting because there, there are essentially three types of intervention that you can do, which is are three schools of thought. There's, there's the sort of the heavy intervention like we did in Iraq. With, with boots, lots of boots on the ground, hundreds of thousands of troops. Then there's the uh, the Libya model of leading from behind, where we take it from the air, but don't put a lot of troops in the ground. That was that, really successful. That didn't, that didn't work that great either. And then there's the non-interventionist approach, which is like, well, let's just, like we did in Syria, let's stay back and let, the, let them fight it out. And basically, all three of those models have, to some extent, failed, this was his point. He was basically saying, people who criticize us in Iraq, well, 
Look at Libya. We did leading from behind, and that didn't work so well. And look at Syria. Uh, we stayed out completely, and all the consequences that you just let, outlined about the refugee flows and the humanitarian catastrophe uh, that came crashing onto Europe's shores. So if all three of those models have been tried, heavy intervention, light intervention, non-intervention, what is the lesson from those experiences going forward in terms of how we can actually win this battle? It's interesting that you offer that observation because there are fairly senior members of government, particularly in the last administration, who would say, yep, this, we tried this and it didn't work. And we tried the opposite and it didn't work. And we tried doing nothing and that didn't work. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the result is, so I said, so what do you do? Just throw your hands up and, <laughs> um, and shout. And I think the important lesson from what Tony Blair was offering, except that he didn't take it far enough, is that we inadequately executed each of those <laughs> in each of those cases that you discussed. In Libya, we did certainly topple the regime, but then by no means did enough in the immediate wake of that to try to help build very, very quickly some government and security and other capabilities. Uh, it was an anemic effort. Um, in Iraq, as is very well known, uh, yeah, we took down the government, but we had very little preparation for what it was that was going to follow. So again, inadequate execution, I think, is actually the explanation for why each of these three failed. Well, it looks like Donald Trump is going to try to do uh, non-intervention better. <laughs> so I think that's where we are. And it, looks, and it looks like the lessons of history will once again smack him I, in the face. I think they will. I, I'm afraid they will. And I, I, I wish, not even for us, I wish for Afghanistan. I wish for all of these places that, that, that they wouldn't. Uh, we've betrayed Afghanistan more than once. Uh, it would be good to, to stand our ground. Uh, it'll benefit, it would benefit us and it would benefit them. It has been a pleasure to be with you. Thank and you yep. so much. For Thank that. you both. Thank you. Really. Well, that was a fascinating interview with General Petraeus. Um, here's, here's the thing. So we've got a lot of Americans agree with Donald Trump that we should end the war in Afghanistan. When they think about it, they yeah. agree with it. Well, they, they, they agree with it. And there's a reason for that. And there's one of the reasons why he was elected is that Americans looked at the last... 18 years, or I guess it was 16 years at the time, of both Republican and Democratic interventions, right? And they looked at Iraq and the disaster that was at least the initial invasion of Iraq before General Petraeus uh, launched the surge and, and, and actually snatched defeat, a victory from the jaws of defeat, right? Until we snatched and, defeat from the jaws of victory back, again. Right. The but the, then, they, then they look at uh, the Libya intervention under Barack Obama, where we went in and knocked off Muammar Gaddafi, and the result was a huge jihadi uh, paradise in Libya, where festering terrorists, all the rest of it. And they look at both the liberal and conservative internationalists, and they say, "You guys suck." You, you know. I you, think they you, really mean you, though. Yeah, but. <laughs> No, they meant you, Danny. Uh, but, you know, you keep losing. And Donald Trump came in and said, you know what? I'm, I'm sick of losing. We, you know, people, we, we've got people who can't win. Stu- we're governed by stupid people. And we're going to start winning again. Hang on a second. And, so, but, but he's and, not winning again. He's just giving up. I know. But I'm not, I'm not defending him. I'm setting it up that, that, that people have a legitimate concern about the way internationalists have carried out these missions over the last 16 years. And so this has created a lack of public support for the continued mission in in Afghanistan and Iraq. And Trump has the wrong solution in pulling out. But there's a lot of people who are saying, what the hell? Why, you know, what the hell are we doing there? Okay, that that that's fair. And I think there and I think you're right. 
this is a failure of leadership. This is a failure. And one of the things, the most important things that I, I heard from Dave Petraeus that I, I really thought was resonant is, you know, I don't, he said, I don't like to say winning, yeah. but we are achieving our mission in Afghanistan. What is our mission? The American people don't support a mission that is to bring peace and security to the Afghan people. Now, I don't happen to agree about that, but I get that they don't because where does it end? Iraq, Afghanistan, Yemen, you know, it can't be our job to bring peace and security to every part of the world, especially not with American blood and treasure. I get that. But that's not our job in Afghanistan. Our job in Afghanistan is to ensure that al-Qaeda and related movements can never again have the operational latitude to plan and execute a mass casualty attack against the United States. By that standard, we are a achieving our mission. And by the way, by the way, we have a an object lesson in ignoring that achievement in Iraq. We achieved it after the surge in 2008. Our casualty rate for our U.S. military went down to the single digits by 2011. And Barack Obama said, hey, you know, and in George Bush's icky wars, I'm going to come home now. And look what resulted. If we had kept that small number and of Donald troops Trump there, criticized him for that at the time. He did. Well, Donald yeah. Trump can't quite decide what what it is that you know that he believes in, and and that's a that's a longer podcast. But but that's the problem is that this has not been posed to the American people correctly. The American people aren't clamoring for our tens of thousands of troops in Korea to come home. They're not clamoring for our tens of thousands of troops in Germany to come home because we know that they're there holding the line. They're there for strategic purposes. They're not there in combat. And I would say the same can be true in Afghanistan. And, and keep in mind that like this is not like when we had hundreds of thousands of troops in Iraq or right. when we had hundreds of thousands of troops in Afghanistan. And we have, I think, something like 6,000 troops in uh, in Iraq right now. We have 2,000 troops going down to 1,000 troops in Syria, which is probably too little. Yeah. We only have 14,000 troops in uh, Afghanistan, and they are not engaged in daily combat. They're engaged in supporting the Afghan forces and in go carrying out counterterrorism operations to make sure these people don't rear their heads. So this is not a major commitment of force. We have far more forces in Korea. We have far more forces in Japan. And I'll tell you a story that sort of illustrates this. I remember uh, during the surge, I was in the White House writing the speeches, uh, uh, making the case for the surge to, to the American, uh, for President Bush to make the case to the American people and report. And his advisors, because for political reasons, his political advisors kept wanting him to talk about withdrawing. And say, and at one point, I remember going into the Oval Office and somebody had put in the line in a speech I don't know anybody who doesn't want to bring our troops home. And he just exploded. And he said, you know, I know somebody who doesn't want to bring our troops home. Me, do I count as somebody I know? And he said, you people have to stop thinking Vietnam and start thinking Korea and Germany and Japan because we're going to have troops in these countries for a very, very long time, not in combat, not in, not in major combat operations, but at, in, a, in a security role to keep these people down. This is how we have to think of this. Afghan we are trying to transition Iraq and Syria and Afghanistan, and it's not a perfect analogy, but we, they, we want to have an enduring presence in those countries because let me tell you something. If we didn't keep – what do you think the Korean Peninsula would look like today if we had not kept troops there? Yeah. Uh, if we had just pulled – if Harry Truman had followed the Obama-Trump strategy of withdrawing all of our troops. The president would be it would meeting be, with Kim Jong-un and Hanoi. Wait a minute. That's not right. <laughs> <laughs> no, so so, Dave, so does, Dave, Dave rightly lays out here 
some of the problems with with this negotiation that basically it doesn't address all of the factors on the ground that would need to be part and parcel of the kind of agreement that actually might enable us in a different scenario to leave. And again, I, I, you're, you're right. I mean, I know there are people who want to get out. I understand that people are tired. I know that the Democratic candidates all want to get out. But, you know, let's, let's set ourselves entirely aside. You played, you played devil's advocate with me on behalf of those who think we need to get out of these endless wars. Let me play the liberal devil's advocate here for a second and say, hey, you know, Bernie Sanders, hey, Elizabeth Warren, hey, all of you guys who think we ought to get out of Afghanistan, what do you think about Taliban rule and women in Afghanistan? Do you remember what happened then? Is that what you want for the women of Afghanistan? Or do you just really not give a damn? The hypocrisy of these of, of all of these people, whether on left or right, is just staggering to me. You know, I think that's a great question for the Democratic candidates. And I think what's interesting is that right now, there is no, except for people like Liz Cheney and other pe- members of Congress, uh, Dan Crenshaw, some of these other guys who are who are stand-up guys in, in Capitol Mike Gallagher. Hill, Mike Gallagher, uh, Lindsey Graham. Tom Cotton. Um, you know, you've got a Republican president and liberal Democratic candidates who are basically agreed on U.S. withdrawal from the world in a lot of ways. And uh, right, this is like this there's is, no this constituency for uh, for vigorous American leadership. But I'll tell you something, Danny. I mean, a lot of people, Americans, will look at that, and not probably not Democratic voters. It's a tough question for Democratic voters. But a lot of Americans, and I think there's some justification in this, is saying that's all terrible. But I don't want my kid to die for that. You know that it's not fair to some use. You want to send my kid to Afghanistan? I, I, it's terrible that there's going to be rapes and pillages and all the rest of it. But my kid has a life here in America. I don't want to send him to die. No, hold on. And so you have to root these things in, if you're going to justify this to the American people, that the, these are all good benefits. But the most important question is, is the decision good for the security of the American people? And the answer and to that is no. no. I know. That's my point. Right. I, one of the things I asked General Petraeus about was this history in Afghanistan that goes back, you know, who's, where's the responsibility for Afghanistan, uh, for 9-11? It wasn't... Bush, you know, not listening to the intelligence. It wasn't even Clinton, though, it was terrible not responding to all these terrorist attacks, escalating attacks. It goes back to our failure to appreciate in the 19, late 1980s, early 90s, that once we drove the Soviet Union out, we just went... Thanks, God, guys. Uh, thanks, guys. Appreciate it. You right. know, you, you have your... You, you good know, you good go, luck to you all. You go, good luck to you all. You <laughs> eat dirt and whatever, you know, and, and uh, live in your caves and, and we're going back to our country and to celebrate right. uh, the, the, no, uh, the unipolar right. moment and, and the end of history. Exactly what I said. back right. on 9-11 because we didn't pay attention to what was happening on the ground in Afghanistan. But I want to I want to underscore another part of this that we didn't talk to, to General Petraeus about but that we touched on and this is the fact that we are ignoring Pakistan at the same time because, you know, we can talk about Afghanistan and the ability of the Taliban to settle down in Afghanistan and bring back al-Qaeda. But what we forget is that, first of all, we all remember where we found Osama bin Laden, and it wasn't in Afghanistan. That's number one. Number two, if these groups all operate without any pushback from the United States, without any support from the United States to the Afghan security forces, and the Pakistani military, as General Petraeus said, is not capable of dealing with them. Do we all recognize that Pakistan is a nuclear weapons state? 
I'm willing to believe that Donald Trump can't think clearly about this. I'm willing to believe that the American people haven't been educated appropriately by their leaders on this question. What I don't understand is, what about the Defense Department? What about the State Department? I have no inside information, but I'm a knowing Mike. Uh, he is pushing back. He pushed back on this as hard as he could, and he's probably trying to make this as the least bad outcome that he can. But I, I think it's a much more – we have to get to a much more fundamental question, which is the people who are driving for non-interventionism and sort of support Donald Trump saying, you know, what the hell, let those people fight their own, own battles. They, they point to Iraq and say, what a disaster. They point to Libya and say, what a disaster. And I turn around and I say, OK, well, we've also tried non-interventionism. It's called Syria. And guess what happened in Syria? Hundreds of thousands of people killed, refugee flows, terrorists flipping into the West. Why is Donald Trump so concerned about Syrian refugees coming to the United States? It's not necessarily because his voters hate Syrians or don't care about people over there. We all saw the picture of that little boy washed up on the shores and our heart broke with those refugee flows. It's because they stated their goal of infiltrating terrorists using refugee flows. So non-interventionism has failed just as badly as any interventions have Well, happened. Donald Trump's answer to you would be, well, just don't take in any refugees. But that, the refugees is a separate issue. My point is that non-intervention has failed as badly as any failures we had of intervention. No, and and so I think we've gotten, whether you agreed with the decision to uh, to go into Iraq, whether you agree with the decision to to go back in and fight ISIS in Syria, whether you agreed with, the, with our strategy in Afghanistan, we've gotten to the point now where we've got our boots on their necks in a lot of places. It's not perfect, but the, and the threat is real. And everybody's thinking, oh, well, OK, now that we don't wake up every morning wondering when the next 9-11 is going to be. Well, the reason for that is because we got their boot on their necks. The lesson of Barack Obama's failure in withdrawing right. from, from Iraq when we, there were only 700 ISIS fighters left. And we withdrew, and within a period of, of months, it became 30,000 and a caliphate the size of Great Britain. These people, as soon as you take your boot off their necks, they're, they're going to rise up, and they're coming for us over here. And, and so the, the cost and the cost of an attack over here far outweighs the cost of keeping these limited numbers 14, of troops. 14,000 troops. Right. 14,000 no, no. troops. It's Listen, not much. We, and, we, you know, the agree. Bush administration, we had a mantra. We're going to fight them over there so we don't have to face them over here. And that is still true today. And, you know, it's just it's frustrating because we don't learn depressing. the lessons of history. We keep repeating the same mistakes. And if it wasn't Donald Trump, it would be somebody else making this mistake. I promise you. Well, I hope um, it, I, I, anyway, I would like to think that I there get... was somebody who wouldn't make this mistake, who might lead us one day. God forbid. Who? Joe Biden, Bernie Sanders, <laughs> Elizabeth <laughs> Warren. OK, don't depress me. <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> Stop that. <laughs> and on that depressing note. <laughs> Until next time, our friends, thank you so much for listening. Yep. Bye, everyone. Our team here at AEI is Alexa Santry, Matt Winesett, Jen Moretta, and Macy Heath. Let us know what topics you'd like us to cover. You can get in touch with the show by emailing us at whatthehell@ai.org. Or you can reach us on Twitter. I'm at D Pletka. And I'm at Mark Thiessen. That's Mark with a C. Please rate and review the podcast. If you like the show, please subscribe, share it, comment on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening to this. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.